You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, we've got a special guest that worked at Capcom as their sound engineer and sound man. He worked on such games as Pinball Magic, Breakshot, Big Bang Bar, Airborne Avengers, Flipper Football, and then after Capcom Pinball, he worked on Vacation America and also with Incredible Technologies and Mark Ritchie on the Orange County Chopper Video Pinball Project. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. Special guest. So I'd like to welcome Jeff Powell to TopCast tonight to talk about his experiences working at Capcom as the sound engineer there and working on such games as Big Bang Bar. He's got some good stories to tell, and we're going to give him a ring right now. Hello. Jeff? Yes. It's Clay. How you doing? <laughs> so how you how long have you been doing this gig, Clay? Wait, who's interviewing who here? <laughs> I, I was watching Larry King last night, so I'm kind of in that mode. <laughs> I remember I did 20 years of radio. Let's start at the beginning. I guess sound probably came before pinball, or did pinball become before sound? Well, sound came in my uh, in my uh, childhood, actually. Uh, when I built my first little radio transmitter in sixth grade. About that same time, lost out to uh, another guy in my class who got the lead role in uh, Ichabod Crane's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which we did for the local, uh, our, our sixth grade class did for the ro- local radio station. Hmm. And I was relegated to the duties of uh, croaking frogs and clinking glasses. So you were the rudimentary background rhythm sound guy. Yeah, I, that was you know when I when I look back, I guess that was the ultimate start of my sound career. Uh, obviously, that was not a professional gig by any stretch, um, but I got into radio in college and got hooked and uh, left electrical engineering for uh, the radio and television program at the University of Illinois when they still had such a program in the College of Communications and graduated out of there in '74. And by that time, I had several years of on-air experience at WPGU and one of the other local stations down there in Champaign, and uh, basically stayed in radio for 20 years. I ultimately ended up uh, at a number of Chicago stations. Radio was a very important part of my background, and basically is where I have learned to do a lot of stuff like music and sound effects. I, I'd always wanted to mix music with media, and um, uh, at the time that I had landed in the Chicago market, first at WDCB out at College of DuPage. I was uh, starting to write uh, tunes and pitching songs to publishers in Nashville. No major recordings, but I certainly learned a lot by pounding the pavement uh, on Music Row and uh, learned how to write better song lyrics and write better commercial uh, melodies, although I was pretty good at writing melodies. WDCB, then I finally got my first commercial radio gig in the city in Chicago and, and stayed there for another 10 years, uh, making the rounds of such stations as the old uh, uh, FM 100, uh, WLAK. I ended up afternoons there for a while, and in uh, uh, a uh, format change, got shown the door and wound up at um, WLS, during the summer of 1989, 
while they were starting to uh, get ready to change a format. I think in 1989 I went through three radio stations and four formats. It was quite a quite a year for upheaval in terms of format changes in Chicago. Did you have a format that you liked? Um, yeah, but I didn't get to I didn't get to do that format until the tail end of my radio career, and that was at the Blaze, where we were playing um, ACDC and Metallica and stuff like that. Uh, you know, at FM 100, I, I spent five years with elevator music. Even though we, we were the number three station in Chicago, and I was doing morning drive for a couple of years, but I didn't get to play personality there. All I you know, was quarter hour breaks and read the liner notes and do weather and news and and um, pretty much just be a voice uh, that was just incidental to the music. And I hated the music, uh, you know, Montavani strings and and 101 strings and Jack Jones occasionally when they finally started adding some vocals in and you know. I, <clears throat> um, it, it was a good gig uh, as far as um, longevity at any one place. Uh, you know, radio is such a transient industry, um, as, as many people know. And so uh, the fact that I stayed there five years was uh, pretty you know, pretty remarkable. Now, is the voice you're talking to us as, is it is this your, your radio voice, as it may be? No, not really. Well, um, you know, sort of, I guess I... No, if I'm talking like this, <laughs> it, it depend. It depended on the station I was at. If it was FM 100, the next time you feel like dialing a friend, dial FM 100. And I always wanted to change this liner card. You hear it in Chicagoland's finest restaurants, and I wanted to go. You hear it in Chicagoland's finest restrooms, <laughs> but I never had the guts to do it. Um, and then I finally ended up at the Blaze, where it was Jeff with the Jams 103.5 The Blaze. So, um, but obviously I'm not going to talk to you like that because I'd lose my voice by the end of uh, ten minutes. Why do radio shifts, are they generally four hours, maybe six at the most? <laughs> Let me tell you, at a place like a top 40 station like WLS, uh, and, and when I was there, they were in the midst of changing from music to all talk. So I was kind of in that in-between mode, and, and um, I was there strictly as a, a pinch hitter. Uh, I had one weekend air shift, and the rest of the time that I was there, uh, for the six months that I was there, uh, was to fill in for other guys who were either out job hunting or, towards the end, when they ended up loading people like John Landecker finally go. And uh, I also filled in two days when they finally let um, Fred Winston out of his contract. Um, and I was just there to fill in play some music and read the commercials and do some light talk, but nothing heavy duty, which was just fine with me, because I wasn't really cut out for talk radio. I, I was more of a music jock uh, at that time. Why well, does it take a certain personality for the talk? Even, even a music jock, when you're in the hot seat for five hours and you only have enough time during a three-minute record to run down the hall and down the hall, maybe way down the hall and... and uh, uh, there are a lot of stories uh, from the old days of people getting locked out of studios. In fact, it happened to an old friend of mine. They forgot to tell him one night that they had changed the door code, <laughs> and they had dead air for quite a while when he couldn't get back into the studio. But uh, when you're in the hot seat, it's you know, you, and you're having to come up with stuff to you know talk about and be bright and cheery, and you're like, thank God, I'd rather be home sleeping, you know. Uh, it's a it's a bit of work, and it takes a lot out of you after five hours. So it's 
it's uh, gets to be rather physical at at, at times because you're really having to work your brain. Plus, you're working the phones uh, sometimes you know, in a format where if you've got to record listeners and win contests and stuff, and you're constantly going back and forth trying to find commercials out of the rack behind you. First morning, I filled in for Fred Winston, and I looked at the log, and and I'd been on radio 15 years, almost 16 years by that point, and I'd never seen. A commercial log so black, <laughs> so so filled with commercials. I as as I did that morning, and I was so glad that we had floods going on, so that our news guys had more to talk about and this and that, because the, the phone lines were lit with people wondering what the hell happened to Fred Winston. And I'm just doing all I can to just keep up finding the damn commercials in the rack to play them in time. And you know, as one's running out, and just finding the next one and slamming it in the machine. Fall of 1991 was the last time I was ever on the air live uh, in Chicago. Uh, and the rest of the time, I've uh, since then, I've been doing uh, jingles for a short time. And then uh, a friend of a friend passed along a uh, blind ad uh, for a company looking for a music composer and sound engineer. And I think I still have that ad tucked away in a file somewhere. And no indication of who the, who, who this company was, but two weeks later, I'm walking in the door at Capcom interviewing for a job and walked away with the job. The job was, uh, yeah, it was in Arlington Heights. Okay. Oddly enough, in the building where I now work for Incredible Technologies. So it was kind of a weird homecoming of sorts there, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> so tell me about the Capcom experience. The Capcom experience. Um, I, I assume you never did any work for Bally or Williams or Gottlieb or any of the other pinball people. No, um, I mean I was aware of machines, but I really wasn't uh, wasn't a fanatic pinball player through uh, much of the '80s. All of that passed me by because I was in radio. That was where my I was in radio, and I was trying to pitch tunes to publishers and artists, and that's where my head was at the time. And uh, in the early '90s, trying to expand my uh, voiceover work until I had uh, major jaw surgery and ended up uh, spending most of a year doing speech rehab. Mm. And uh, that's that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> but um, once I got past that and, and uh, was taking a look at where I stood as far as jingle production, I, w- I was partnering with a guy, Steve Wiebe. When I went through my speech rehab in 92 uh, and early 93, I was really... Uh, having a lot of second thoughts about the jingle market because it was so fiercely competitive in Chicago and I was so underfunded in terms of my own uh, keyboard equipment and software which uh, really was terribly expensive at the time you know to buy a, a, a one gig hard drive set you back about 1500 bucks at the time hmm. and uh, we had no such things as DVD burners and, and things yet and so uh i you know and i was almost flat broke and so when this ad came through for a music composer i i had done just enough industrial music and stuff and had put together a couple of music demos and i had learned how to do demos from all the voiceover stuff i had done in the past and and uh learning from uh some of the big name talent in chicago and and the way they had done their voiceover tapes and stuff so I'd learned to put together these three to five minute presentations that, that were like nonstop music with you know short clips of all the stuff I had done, and apparently that's what uh, got me past the piles and piles of tapes that had come into the guys at Capcom. And I and, and I really knew that you know 
I knew that they were probably going to have all these piles because I had seen similar piles of tapes come into the publishers down in Nashville. Some of the guys showed me all these tapes that would come in from people, you know, all the wannabes, and, and I was very fortunate. I'd been able to get in the door at a lot of places because uh, I had, you know, enough stuff that was fairly credible. Um, but it, it's fiercely competitive everywhere. Make this decision as to which way do I go. Sent out this tape to this blind ad. Thought nothing of it. It's like, well, it's going to be another tape. I won't hear from them. And two weeks later, I got a letter back saying, well, we'd like to interview you. So I called them up and walked in and um, interviewed with uh, people like Python Angelo, Mark Ritchie. Ultimately, I ended up interviewing um, at length with Mark Ritchie. And he offered me the job. And I was like, great. <laughs> so, because I could use the job at that point. I was almost flat broke. And uh, it offered me a an abrupt left turn out of this uh, uh, midlife crisis, I guess. Uh, and uh, I never looked back on, on radio, other than I've kept some of the uh, voiceover clients that I've had. Uh, you know, I still do Andreana Furs uh, radio and TV commercials, and like I said, FIM. I've done some car commercials from time to time, and I have do some other voice stuff for uh, non-commercial stuff, telephone information providers and whatnot. Uh, On-hold advertising. Uh, there's a lady... Uh, out of Indiana that I still do work for. So uh, you'll hear me on a lot of veterinarian, uh, you know, background music uh, messages and uh, doctor's offices and stuff like that around the country. But uh, hmm. um, those are things I still do on the side uh, because it, you know, keeps my hand in a variety of things and kind of keeps me fresh and it brings in fun money for all the expensive uh, gear that I like to have in my studio. Right. But Capcom was a wonderful learning lab because suddenly I was thrown into something I had never experienced before, and that was a manufacturing environment. I had never produced audio for a manufacturing environment before, so I had to learn all about how to create little short files. Here, I'm, I'm used to doing radio commercials and, and uh, lengthy tracks for slide tape presentations. That was, you know, before video was big. And, uh, you know, full-length uh, tune demos, you know, fully produced 24-track uh, tune demos for pitching to publishers and stuff. And suddenly I had to create these little short audio files with everything trimmed off because we had to fit everything into teeny tiny spaces on EEPROM chips. I'd never worked with that before. Huh. Wow, what an experience. I even had to learn how to burn the damn things. Right. Burn the, the EEPROM chips. I'd never done that before. And... Um, and learning, you know, just about the whole process of building a, a game, a, a mechanical device that uh, ultimately used audio within it, and uh, with audio that had to be synchronized to uh, a dot, mat dot matrix screen, and, and uh, audio that responded to uh, mechanical switches and things. This was this was this was like, wow, this is great, this is cool. You know, when they finally slapped on the art and stuff. However, it was a very scary experience, also. Because my they threw me into the fire on pinball magic. Yeah, that was their first game, and and they basically said, "Do it right." Yeah, it was my very first coin op game ever. Now I've in counting I'll, by the end of the summer, I'll probably have completed a hundred such projects over the course of my sound design career. But that was game number one. Manny Della Torrenti, who uh, had uh, done Goofy Hoops and had started out as their sound designer and later went on into programming, um, got me started and, and taught me a lot of things about how to 
do short files and and uh, we were also uh, Capcom was trying to decide whether they were going to go with a sound card that had one channel of audio and one channel of MIDI sounds and um, so I was trying to learn how to develop sounds for the MIDI chip uh, and at the same time start getting some playfield sound effects into the uh, Pinball Magic game. And I got a couple of uh, tunes going uh, that first summer. Uh, I was hired there July 11th of 1994. And that summer I, I got one or two tunes uh, uh, developed before I traipsed out to the Philippines to get married in uh, uh, September of that year. But uh, so they they knew that I was on the right track with the music and stuff. Uh, you know, I kind of got off to a good start there. But well, well, just to slow you down a little, what is the actual progression? Like, say, like for Pinball Magic. I mean, did you write the theme music? Did you uh, do any of the voices, or did you have to hire talent to do? You know, obviously, you hired some talent to do some of the voices. Did you record them all? What was the whole assembly process to make the whole thing happen? Well, Pinball Magic, um, I'm trying to remember all the voices. I, I know that we used Mark Ritchie's wife, Trudy, as the central magician. I forget what her name was now. And I don't remember how many other voices. I, I think I did a few things in there. Chris Graner. Chris Graner came on board a little later on and added some things, and I'll, I'll talk about that experience a little later on here. But Manny had taught me to you know write a piece of theme music first, uh, a general piece of music out of which would come the the main mode music and stuff like that. Uh, and then the other themes would come later. He had written one uh, theme for one of the magicians, which uh, we ended up... <clears throat> he actually, I think, wrote two pieces. One didn't get into the game. The other piece, I had to rewrite because we discovered it was uh, way too close to the Batman theme. <laughs> so we ended up rewriting that uh, piece, but I learned later that skip the process of writing a main theme, or full-length main theme anyway, have a main theme, sure, but um, you know, a game like Big Bang Bar had so many different modes uh, that um, one theme just wasn't going to do it for that kind of game. So what do you do, just write, write maybe a couple hooks and then move everything around the hooks? Um, I think every project is a little different. Uh, but a project, and I'm thinking even more recently, the Orange County Choppers video pinball at uh, Incredible Technologies. Um, you know, I, I just kind of launched in with the first theme, knowing that th this game's going to spread out and go a variety of places and, and with its modes and depths. And, and in a game like that, we had three virtual play fields, so each play field had to have a whole different theme. So I just didn't even worry about uh, one main theme. I just launched in the first theme that I think this is going to be the opening theme. Ultimately, um, uh, that was the case, but I try not to spin my wheels too much. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time developing one piece of music that later won't end up as a final in the game. I, I uh, you know, get some ideas going, and then I, I want to move on from there. I want to, you know, produce a piece that I know is going to go in the game, and then move on to the next piece that's going to go in the game, rather than uh, develop something that ultimately will end up just as a demo piece. Well, how do you write this? I mean, are you writing this on uh, on a keyboard, on a guitar? Are you doing this on a MIDI system? How does this ultimately start out? Well, in the Capcom days, I was working on a, a Mac Quadra 650. I had Studio Vision as a MIDI and audio program at the time. Now, I had that was another thing. I had to learn to work with the Mac because I was a PC pro a person up to that point, and I had worked primarily with Cakewalk. 
and uh, a couple of other programs. But I had a, a rack with a number of rack modules and a keyboard. I'm a keyboard person. Uh, I wish I knew how to play guitar, but I don't have the time or the patience to go back and learn it now, I think. I uh, sometimes will start with a rhythm, oftentimes with a melody first and work down from there and then fill in the arrangement. Because of the, the various magicians, I came up with uh, themes for all the different magicians and half of them never made it into the game because we didn't have enough room on the EEPROM chips to fit all the stuff. Hmm. So only a few of the uh, themes ultimately ended up in the game. So is sound digitized or is it MIDIized? Well, it starts in MIDI, or, or a lot of my stuff does in MIDI. Um, in fact, I, 90% of the work that I do uh, is MIDI-based to start. But MIDI is merely, you know, MIDI is musical instrument digital interface. And it is like the old player piano. Uh, the MIDI data is like the holes on a player piano roll where the da- you know the, the notes are stored, which notes are played, and as that roll plays, it plays the piano. Right. And a, a MIDI keyboard is like the piano, the MIDI data is like the player piano roll. Right. Uh, and, and the computer uh, that stores that data uh, uh, is like part of the player piano roll. So that's kind of the analogy that I draw, is MIDI is like a player piano of sorts. Yeah, and, and depending on the computer that interprets the MIDI MIDI data, it'll sound different on based on different MIDI computers. Well, it depends on the instrument that is you know, playing back that data. If, if you're playing off a Sound Blaster sound card that's got a you know set of uh, MIDI uh, instruments on it, as opposed to say an older Roland card or a Yamaha card, yeah, they they've their instruments they they all um, stick pretty much to the old Roland standard. Roland was one of the early players in MIDI and, and set up the standard that everybody, you know, the general MIDI standard that uh, everybody still holds to today to some degree. Um, but yeah, the instruments do sound a little different. But then you've got all of these rack modules over the years. Uh, I've got a bunch of them here at home that probably should go on eBay because they sit dark now. But, uh, you know, like the Alesis D4 and the all kinds of old Roland boxes, the U220 and the, the JV1080 and and the uh, 5050, an older Procussion, which I probably won't sell from Emu, and um, oh, the uh, Wave Station, and I've I've got an old D50 and a Korg M1 and uh, you know, all these old keyboards and rack modules that I used to use in orchestral boxes that I had, the, you know, and the... Um, Emu Virtuoso. I, there was, I have a lot of things here that I did not have when I started at Capcom. I had a JD990. That was a Roland box. And a Wave Station rack unit. And a Kurzweil 2000, K2000 uh, rack mount unit. And then I had a, a MIDI keyboard controller made by Fatar. And I think that was about it for my initial lineup. And then, oh, and then I had a sample cell card from Digidesign. And Sample Cell was the first sampler I ever used. And uh, so I was able to uh, play all of that stuff out of Studio Vision and then record back the finals into um, Sound Designer 2, which was the forerunner to the current uh, Pro Tools uh, software. And this is all done on the Mac? Yeah, yeah, that was all done on the Mac. Um, on the PC side, I was starting to learn how to use SoundForge, which I still use today, although I have to say in a sidebar that Sony uh, has a little work to do on cleaning up the erratic behavior of SoundForge 9, but uh, 
um, I'll I'll stop there. They've, they've added some wonderful things to that program, but uh, they've also tweaked and mucked, and, and uh, they've got a lot of people upset, including myself right now. Some things aren't working quite the way they were in that program, but it remains my my main Swiss Army knife as far as uh, sound file editing and manipulating uh, effects and stuff like that. You know, MIDI starts out with MIDI data, and it plays MIDI instruments, and uh, the audio output of those various rack mounts, uh, keyboards, and nowadays, virtual soft software synthesizers, all of that gets recorded into uh, an audio recording program somewhere. And so audio is audio and MIDI is MIDI, and they're, they're, they're two separate things. And in fact, if you look in my studio or any audio studio, you'll have three sets of cabling, one for power, one for MIDI, and, and another set of cables for audio. And I have miles and miles and miles of cable. Uh, well, I, I exaggerate a little bit, but uh, probably a mile of cable in my little studio at home um, and uh, for audio power and uh, MIDI hmm. so on the Capcom soundboard then there's a MIDI channel and then there's a digitized audio channel then the digitized audio is for, is for, for voice right well yeah I did have a I did have a little mix board Come, come to think of it, I had a Mackie mixer, uh, 1604, was the original uh, uh, 1604 line. Uh, they've now gone through um, a couple of major um, reincarnations of that board, and, and the, uh, the version 3 is a, is a wonderful little uh, field uh, mixer. Uh, I have one of those. But, <clears throat> but, but, but the advantage to the MIDI is that the f- sound files are very, very small compared to, like, digitized sound data. Right. Problem with the MIDI, and this is going back to the decision that Capcom was trying to make between using a a sound card that had one audio channel that we would have used for speech and certain sound effects, and a MIDI channel that would have been used for just music. The problem with that is that when they decided to go with two audio channels only, I went, "Yay! Now we can make this sound like AM radio." And somebody looked at me and said, "Well, well AM radio isn't that great a quality." I said, "Wait a minute." If I can do everything in audio, that means I can process all of this audio and punch it up and make it sound much bigger and fuller and livelier than I could ever do with a MIDI instrument. In other words, um, one of the things I really learned how to use uh, was a compressor, and that's what makes everything bigger. And it, and it takes me back to radio because if you stop and think, if, if, if you've known somebody you've talked to in person and that person you hear them on the radio, they sound different, and it's because radio compresses the hell out of everything. Everything is as loud as the engineers can make it, because you want to be the loudest thing on the dial, uh, and so everything's run through limiters and compressed, and that's what fattens up a lot of the sound. Yeah, when I when I was a kid, that and playing uh, playing guitar, my uh, one of my main tools was uh, an MXR Dynacomp, which was a compressor. I always thought it, it it made a lot more intense and a lot more bold. Oh yeah, and and so it it is a must in a uh, sound engineer's toolkit uh, as far as uh, the um, mastering process goes. And uh, I hadn't really learned to use that too much um, in my jingle days. I, I was working with other engineers, and and they would end up doing that in the studio. But uh, uh, and and as far as radio stuff, we never used it on on the commercial stuff because the stuff that went out on the air got compressed in the final stage, so we never had to do it there. But now suddenly I'm thrust into a, uh, the arena where I had to master everything I did, and when they made the decision to go audio only, albeit it was only two channels, um, 
And in the case of the brake shot game, we only had a single channel to work with, and, and we'll get to those challenges in a moment also. I keep putting all these things off for a moment. Hopefully we can remember to tie these threads up. But um, two, channel, two channels of audio allowed me to do much punchier things than, than a single channel of audio and MIDI. And I ended up uh, working with such a system later uh, after the Capcom experience when I went to work on slot machines at Anchor. They had, they had such a beast. And... Uh, uh, it was like, ugh, gosh. So Capcom did did use the two audio channels and 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 didn't do any MIDI channel. Pinball Magic went out with uh, two audio channels, and uh, Breakshot, which was the game, one of the games right behind that, they they did Airborne. Chris Graner had come on board to help me finish up uh, the choreography and add a few sounds on Pinball Magic yeah, when when. He, we first got it introduced, and after he'd listened to what I had done in the game, he said, well, you know, you've done 90% of the game already. Uh, I, w- I was still kind of looking over my shoulder because I was still kind of shaky on choreography. Pinball is not an easy platform, and to this day, I still think pinball is the most difficult platform, bar none, uh, to, to produce interactive audio. Um, interactive meaning things that, that have to change on the fly even more so than console games. Much as I would love to do console games and, and write great thematic orchestral scores and stuff, and I haven't been able to break over into that yet, but uh, I... And yes, the, the sheer number of files that go into a console game and you know the, the amount of music is, is much larger, but I think in terms of designing for interactivity, because pinball is so fast and so random... And you have points where, in some games, the storyline can go one of seven different directions sometimes, and and you have to make this thing happen all with a seamless wall of sound. Kind of, you know, I, I kind of take the Phil Spector approach, you know, the old wall of sound uh, idea um, from the uh, '60s. And uh, my other mantra is, everything as loud as possible. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I was kind of looking over my shoulder, thinking, "Am I making the grade here?" You know, I, and I, I don't know if I'm quite getting this choreography right on Pinball Magic. And, and Chris came along and helped me shore up some of the final details on it. And once we got through that project, uh, they let me uh, fly solo on Breakshot, which was a single-channel game. So that meant everything that played interrupted everything else. <laughs> hmm. So there could be no overlap. No. There, there, no, and anything that played cut off whatever was playing before it. Hmm. That's a trip. So I had to learn how to uh, I had to learn how to tighten up speech as squeaky tight as I could make it, shave off the ends, you know, the tails of speech files, and then do a, a slight time compression on every speech file, twenty to seven, to get to ring out an extra twenty to seventy milliseconds of time out of each speech file. Because when we got done with that game and I added up the time, uh, I believe it was 2 minutes and 56 seconds of total audio in the Breakshot game, and that was it. Hmm. So they di- was that like a cost-cutting thing? They used a, a different soundboard to save some money? I think it was the same soundboard. They were just cutting costs everywhere else in the game. Somebody told me later that yeah, we the game was capable of playing two channels. Uh, gosh, that's a Tony DeFeo question. I think it had to do with the the chip and the way we loaded stuff, and we we're only they were only allowing us to play one one channel out of that. So um, that was it, and and then uh, 
then I started work on uh, Big Bang Bar right after that. Big Bang Bar was the third game I worked on. Well, now, before we get to Big Bang Bar, on Breakshot, there was some pretty sexy speech going on in Breakshot, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Elizabeth Stroll, I, uh, and I'd listened to her in the office, and I felt she was a natural for that. And then Chris Granter did the male voice in that game. And uh, I I played the part of the moose. Bullorama! The old uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle stick. How do you find voice talent for for these games? I mean, you know, how do you get these people? Well, we could have hired them through agencies, and uh, Pinball Magic, we didn't hire anyone from the outside uh, from the outside world. Uh, I generally, I like to try and use people from the office, but uh, a lot of times that fails miserably in games that you've you've heard countless games where you can't understand the speech or somebody's you know really stiff or whatever. In some games companies will pay an exorbitant amount to hire an outside talent through an agency to, to you know do sound alike uh, you know characters stuff like that Fred Young uh, I used to know Fred downtown he's, he's done a lot of pinball games for people where he's you know done the Star Wars Star Trek characters and stuff like that we were not doing licensed themes and so I felt well here's a chance to get some people in the office actually in the game although it's it's a lot more work and I really have to direct them kind of Suzuki method where I'll read the line it's like here, here's how I'm going to read the line repeat after me and do it this way and some people are more tone, tone deaf than others and they can't quite get the pitch right and I'll have to do it like 40 takes until I get them to say the line just right and sometimes uh, even then I'll maybe take a piece of a phrase from this take and a piece of a phrase uh, from that take and put those pieces together to get what I want but um, I am the editing king so <laughs> all modesty aside so uh it, it's a little more work, but um, that way I get the people I work with involved in the game more, and, and that's kind of fun. Um, but you know, if we if we if time was a consideration, which it didn't seem to be so much uh, in my world in Capcom until until crunch time at the end, and, and then yeah, I was always praying for uh, slippage in some of the other departments. But um, I didn't have to worry so much about. Uh, time and getting the speech together uh, early on in the games, and I didn't have to worry about sounding like some character in a movie or, or something like that. So I could rely more on the uh, the office talent and uh, direct them. And, and uh, in the case of uh, Flipper Football, we actually got about 150 of the people from the office and the warehouse and, and the manufacturing area out onto the back loading dock for a, a two-hour shouting match where I had them shouting and singing various chants, and we ended up mixing that into uh, uh, soccer crowd uh, sound effects to get the uh, the game. So I had about 150 people from the office come out and help me on that game, huh. which was a lot of fun. Now, one thing that, that people constantly ask is, like, I you know, they want to change the sounds in their pinball machine in their basement. Is that possible at all, or is that just, like, unbelievable amount of work? And time and energy. You mean actually stick in their own music and stuff? Yeah, or their own voice. That would take probably um, reprogramming, I think. Uh, that's a Tony DeFeo question, I think, or, or uh, Bill Foots and Ryder, you know, Foots. Um, you know, when everything's burnt into a, an EEPROM chip, uh, it's, it's pretty much cast in stone. 
whereas uh, the newer console games, you know, you know, software today allows, and, and Microsoft, of course, encourages it, which is why they don't want to pay bands anything uh, for royalties uh, to be in their games, which I think is uh, not good for musicians. But uh, nonetheless, um, you know, when you got console games with software designed to allow you to stick in your own music, that's one thing. But uh, me- electromechanical games with uh, EEPROMs, um, you know, things were programmed in. Uh, you'd have to be a programmer, I think, to be able to uh, make your own changes. So you wouldn't even be able to do that. No, I, I, am not a programmer, so I, w- I wouldn't. Uh, and besides which, I've got better things to do. <laughs> <laughs> you did it once. You don't need to do it twice. No, I mean, I, you know, I, I designed a game how I, I think it should be, or where, wherever the inspiration of the day took me, um, or where the game designer wanted it to go, asked for something specific, or however the talent I was working with, the speech talent uh, did something. Um, You know, there's a lot of experimentation as far as doing the music and sound effects and stuff, and we stick things in and try it and see if it works, and a lot of days it's magical, and some days some things just, it's like, God, that really sucks, we gotta, you know, take that out. But, um, you know, it's much like uh, building a whitewood. You know, you can draw it and, and think you've got all the mechanical stuff happening on on your drawing and then when you go to stick those things in gosh you know you end up uh, puttying up a lot of screw holes because things just didn't work <laughs> so uh trial and error uh and when when a game finally goes out the door and everything's pretty cohesive it's in my mind it's the best i felt i could do at the time now if big bang bar came around again would i do it the same way mm, probably not but it's like a lot of artists who come back. It's like Layla, you know. It's, it's it didn't get re-recorded the same way you know, the second time around. Um, so whatever it was at that time, it was the best we felt we could do. And if you know everybody liked it that way, then great. Um, but you know, if somebody wants to change something, well, I think in a pinball game, you'd have to be a programmer to uh, change the uh, the chip or add some component that would allow you to. You know, when something fired off something allow you to play it off in a, an additional audio com, you know component that you stick in the game or something but well tell me about big bang bar okay well let's start with the sound how did you write the you know the bass music for it and the whole progression through the you know the soundtrack and and everything you had to go through and and of course uh, all this the sexy girl talk who are they and where they come from yeah <laughs> Everybody wants to know about the tube dancer. Um, all right, backing up, uh, when Rob Morrison started working on that game, and he was a big fan of Filter, and so he had me pull out a Filter tune. I can't remember the name of it, but I can certainly remember how the you know, how they were yelling, screaming on the on the record on this tune. And so we stuck that in just as a placeholder for. Oh, I was in there for several weeks, and. I remember that Stan Fukuoka, the artist, the main artist on the project, uh, went through quite a number of different drawings, and and it started as a very serious uh, tone, and ultimately became very whimsical. And 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 it was really fun to watch Stan's drawing. Stan's a great artist. I really enjoyed working with him, and uh, would love to work with him again someday. Um, I ran into him a couple years ago at Pinball Expo, and and uh, it was kind of a pretty neat um, reunion of sorts. But uh, 
when it started to take on the whimsical tone, it's like, yes, this this is great. Uh, I started to think back to, and I'm going to start showing my age here, but uh, I was I was a child of the '60s. Um, you know, grew up in the late '50s and '60s, and I uh, started thinking back to old TV shows like Lost in Space and Twilight Zone and uh, Men into Space and My Favorite Martian and stuff like that, and all the you know, the Jetsons and I started thinking spoofs on old 60s sci-fi. That's that's where the music should go. And so that's exactly what I did. I, and, and I had uh, all these wonderful samples and things and, and instruments that would produce some, some of these wonderful things. The, the Kurzweil K2000 was kind of a, you know, um, it's a, it's a uh, synthesizer and sampler, and I, I was able to get some unique effects out of that, the JD990. I was also working with the Yamaha TG500, which had just come out uh, a couple years before. Um, that's a synthesizer uh, you know, rack module, and they had some interesting effects on there. I started writing tunes that were more kind of spoofs on 1960s science fiction. And and so you know when you first fire up the game, the shooter groove and the main play tune. That's uh, that that was that's kind of the where it's, you know once I did those tunes, that was the direction. Now you said that today you might change some things. What what did you mean by that? Well, I, I you know I have a whole different set of tools. Uh, software synthesizers are different. There's there's a much much greater palette of special sound effects and things that I, and, and synthesizers that, that do all kinds of unique and weird and fun things that uh, it would probably take on a very different sound now uh, because of the uh, technology you know, where technology is gone but um, I would probably still do a very spoofy, very campy theme if, if the art uh, stayed the same but you know we, we all, we draw from personal experiences and this was 11 years ago. Looking at my uh, speech list, which was the last uh, thing I did, July 9th of uh, 1996 was uh, the date on this uh, list. Well, tell me more about the women of Big Bang Bar. The women. Well, let's see. We had, for the longest time, I kept remembering eight characters in this game. Uh, actually, there is a ninth, which I had forgotten about when I interviewed with Michael Shalhoub when he was writing his book. Um, there is a ninth character who has one line, and that is uh, Denise um, Walner, who was our dot matrix. Um, she was in charge of the dot matrix art staff, and I had her come in and scream at the top of her lungs, the looped in space line in the game. Gosh, we must have done that maybe 20 times, and I finally got a take uh, that I liked. There are eight main characters in the game. There's Ray the bartender, the doorman, the waitress, uh, the two aliens, the female patron, the DJ, and, of course, the tube dancer, which I had forgotten until I pulled out this list today out of my box, uh, my old box of Capcom files and stuff. Uh, we had named her Moaning Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I have on my sound sheet, Moaning Lisa. Mary Kinahan was her name. She uh, had originally worked for Mark Ritchie as his assistant, and uh, we pulled her in, or I pulled her into the studio, or asked her to come in. I didn't like run out in the hall and grab her and say, "Mary, you're... Um, I asked her if she would be interested in doing this. I had mentioned to her there there may be some slightly suggestive lines. Would she would she have any problems doing that? Because we all knew that she was 
she seemed to be a rather conservative person, but um, you know, she had she had this voice that I kept thinking, you know, I got to use her somewhere in this game, um, even though. Again, she's not a trained uh, voice talent by any. We, we did hire one person from the outside. Um, her name was Anita, and she did the uh, she did the uh, waitress, the the Jewish sounding uh, you know gum chewing waitress, um, who goes ew at the end when the uh, alien uh, does his uh, gag splat at the end. Right, the splat on the on the match. Uh, yeah, on the match. I was looking at the sound list. Uh, I, I think I called that file "gack splat." <laughs> so, um, so she did all of those lines. Uh, Anita did all the waitress lines, but uh, Mary did the uh, tube dancer. And um, I told the guys on the design staff, particularly Mark Ritchie, I said, "This has got to be a closed door session. It's just going to be Mary and me in the studio. I don't want any interruption on this one." I don't want people hanging around because uh, I, I wanted her to get into the character with, without being distracted or guys you know, making snide remarks, and, and uh, then I would never get anything out of her. And uh, it took a lot of coaxing to kind of get her into it, and I don't know how many takes we did. I don't have the original audio tracks from that. Uh, that all, those things ended up on MO discs that probably got tossed out somewhere at Capcom. No. Why didn't you just go to the local strip club and get a dancer? <laughs> I I don't know. Mary was definitely not that kind of person, but I was able to. But she had the type of voice where I was able to coax her into it. And um, the other thing that's was kind of fun with that is that the oohs and the ahs and the music came off of a track off of one of the Hollywood Edge sound libraries. There was a, a track on there with a female having an orgasm. And I was able to pull the oohs and you know the moans off of that and put them into the rhythm of the music. And after EQing and doing some processing to Mary's voice, I was able to make the two sound very much alike. So a lot of people have gone, that's all the same person, right? I said, no. I don't know who the person is who did the the oohs and the ahs and the, that I used in the tune. That was on a, that was stock library stuff that I had manipulated a little bit, uh, cut up and edited and, and processed a little, and I was able to EQ and 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 get them to sound very much alike. Uh, so um, Mary heard herself uh, um, like a week or two later in the game. She walked into an office where we were playing on the game, and somebody got into the mode, and she just turned bright red. <laughs> It was like, it was like, oh, I, and but um, to this day, she remains one of the most popular characters in that game. So, whether she knows it or not, huh? I yeah, I don't know if she knows it or not, but um, you know, people ask me about the tube dancer uh, all the time. Um, we did have one other female in the game, and uh, her name was Grace, and I can never remember her last name. Uh, I know that Steve Sabota, I think, had it on his website when he was running that contest a year or so ago <clears throat> about uh, naming the characters in the game. And um, it was it was some long Polish name, and she had an Eastern European accent that was just... Uh, I always was attracted to her accent, and I thought, you know, i got to use her in a game, and she had a, a nice-sounding voice. But again, she was not a trained voice actor, and I really had to work the Suzuki method on her and but um well what's the Suzuki method Suzuki method in uh it, it's often used with violin students 
where the teacher will uh, play something and then uh, the student is supposed to imitate the the teacher hmm. and that's the Suzuki method it's like do as I do or you know play it like I play it and so I'll read a line you know and I'll, I'll get a little gravel in the voice that we call it vocal fry you know that sultry oh you know I I like to fly big rockets was one of the lines that I had Grace do and uh, it took her a long time to get get the right sultry sound I was looking for, but she finally nailed one, and uh, I think that's uh, I think I did hear that in the game recently when I I got to play on one of the reproductions um, down in Plainfield recently that uh, Gene Cunningham had uh, built. Okay, we're going to take a little break from talking with Jeff Powell, and we'll be back after this message. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of TopCast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos, insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal's for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Jeff Powell from Capcom Pinball with some more of his stories. Okay, there's more stories from Bing Bang Bar. Um, one of the other, you know, Ray the bartender was certainly a central uh, character in the game. And for weeks, guys have been saying, you know, we we got to put Davy Jones. Davy Jones was the head of our security at Capcom. He was he was the he was kind of a, a portly uh, gentleman who um, lived in the back office by the uh, the entrance to the plant where we all walked in. Hmm. And uh, when he, when you talk to him, he sounded a bit like Ray Charles, <laughs> and he had this infectious laughter. He was just a funny guy. I really enjoyed talking with him, uh, and that's why everybody wanted to st- have Davy in one of our games. And when when we finally got to the whimsical turn in the art that uh, Stan was developing for the game, and we knew it was going to take on a more comical uh, aspect, uh, that's when I started thinking, all right, Davy Jones should be the uh, Ray the bartender. And uh, I, this must have been a weekend I did this with him, I, I guess, because I recall nobody being around in the building, and, and it had to have been on, like, on a Saturday. We put him in uh, what's called a whisper room, and that was our, our sound booth that we used for recording voice stuff. And, uh, uh, again, the Suzuki method I talked about earlier, I'd, I'd be kind of, like, throwing my arms in the air, you know, to... to uh, show more uh, animation to his delivery and uh, by the time we got to lines like shake it baby shake it baby I had him jumping up and down on the chair and it was so <laughs> funny I wish I had a videotape of it it was just I just had this memory of him going uh, just let it fly baby and, and gosh what were some of the other lines lines like if you're willing to pay I'm willing to pour and uh, gosh what were some of the other lines uh, come on drink up let's go baby let's go uh, that was in the um, that was like hurry up modes and gosh what were some of the other uh, lines I was the, I played two characters in that game I did the doorman um, what are you waiting for and and uh, you know Ray wants to see you at the bar and I actually then pitched me down just a little bit um, you know player one is that your beater getting towed and other stuff like that. And then uh, I also played Alien 2. I kept thinking it was Alien 1, but when I pull out the script today and I realize which lines were which, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I did things like, let's scan for babes, and um, looks like an asteroid to me. 
she's got more likes than a lunar lander. And, uh, oh, yeah, one of my favorites. Look at the planets on that Loda Boomba. <laughs> Stuff like that. And then I would, you know, I, I would pitch, I, I recorded it in a higher voice and then ran it through a ring modulator to get the effect on me. And then Frank Tanzik did Alien 1. Oh, and then we had the DJ. Um, Daryl Williams uh, came from the video site, Street Fighter Alpha. It's like, come on, Jeff. <laughs> Names here. So Daryl was w- working with that stuff, and and he did our uh, DJ with you know the in the dot matrix screen. Uh, we did a a tilt upward on on the DJ, and and he's got an afro from here to way out of space. You know, right? <laughs> it's kind of funny to look at. It's <laughs> pretty good. Uh, and then what was the other? That, that was pretty much it. Eight characters. It was Ray, the doorman, the waitress, the aliens one and two, the female patron, the DJ, the tube dancer. And then that one line from Denise Walner, the looped in space, which uh, that was a name I came up with. Um, they were trying to figure out what to name this one mode. Um, it was like a, a random mode. And I forgot what the skill shot. I, I, I believe it involved loop shots. And uh, nobody was coming up with a name. And, you know, in my usual sick radio joke style, I just said, oh, well, looped in space, you know. And everybody kind of looked at me like, eh, well... Mm, they thought about it a while. I think Rob Morrison was like kind of so-so on it. Nobody could come up with another name for it, so it finally stuck. You know, looped in space. <laughs> so that was my one contribution to naming modes in the game. <laughs> well, it sounds like it was a good product. That sounds like you had a lot of fun with Big Bang Bar. I had a lot of. I had a ball with that game. Enjoyed working with the whole team on it, and Dan and, and uh, Paul Mazur and the rest of the art guys did such a great job on the art. It was such a departure from the usual heavy reds and blacks uh, you know, with, with the blues and greens, the, you know, a little more pastel, and just the, the fun nature of the game. Um, I just wish it could have gone to manufacturing when it was supposed to have, but uh, I'm happy to see reproductions out there and, and uh, you know, more people being able to enjoy that game. And, and it certainly came to a surprise to me when Steve Sabota called me up uh, last year, year and a half ago, and and said, "Do you know you have a fan club out there?" <laughs> I was like, "What?" It's <laughs> <laughs> like, "Geez, such a surprise!" I I had no idea that a game that never got manufactured initially would generate the buzz that it has. And again, I think partly because it didn't get manufactured, right? So, yeah. What led to the hype and and the buzz and the interest in the game? No, it's a good, it's a really good game. I mean, I, I mean, it's still there's only 180, you know, less than 185 of them out there. So there's still, believe me, there's still a good buzz. You know? Yeah, I was kidding. Uh, one of the guys, uh, uh, Tog, I guess the other guy at uh, Cunningham's place, I was saying, got any, uh, got any of those left? He said, No, nah, somebody just bought the last one for twelve grand. <laughs> It's like oh, a little too rich for my blood. Yeah. So, if, uh, you know, some guys buy games, and I've put all my money into uh, musical instruments and audio gear, and I've got uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of stock library sound effects that I've acquired over the years. Um, yeah. Probably close to forty thousand sound effects in my collections of libraries. Wow! So that's that's what I've been collecting is because uh, that's you know those are my tools. What do you know about Williams? Uh, trying to acquire Big Bang Bar. All I know is, 
uh, from Python who said, yeah, Williams bought it up, and then they dumpstered the whole thing. And it's like, okay. Python tends to exaggerate and change the facts a lot, I think. And um, one never knows what what's truth and what's fiction. Yeah, it was supposed to be a filler game right before 2000, and they thought, well, we need a game, we need a game now, we need a game that's done, so they, they brought Big Bang Bar, at least, I don't know about Kingpin, in-house, and they thought it would be easy to modify the Capcom design to to Williams hardware, and it turned out it really wasn't, and they kind of gave up, it was taking too much energy. See, now, now you just taught me a thing today, so. yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't heard all that part of it, but uh, that doesn't surprise me, because, uh, you know, Essentially, uh, we had become two different worlds, and uh, even though uh, there was a lot of ex-Williams people designing stuff, but uh, they had kind of went in a direction they had wanted to go that uh, Williams wouldn't go, um, although our audio, I think, was uh, quite a bit inferior. Well, they had to basically rewrite all the software, do redo all everything in Williams on the Williams hardware system because, you know, they weren't going to sell Capcom boards in a Williams game, and it just got to be to the point where I think it was uh, more work than it was to actually design a game, so that's why Cactus Canyon came out instead of, you know, them trying to adopt either one of these games. Well, and, and uh, Tom Capera uh, mentioned, uh, I think, yeah, Cactus Canyon, they even had to uh, cut that one short. Right. Um, they, he, he, he needed a few more weeks, and the, they told him that you, you don't have any more weeks um, because they were getting ready to... Uh, in fact, I guess they even cut off the production run on that one to uh, get the 2000 series out. Right. What did you think of the Gene Cunningham reissue project? It plays pretty well. Um, I score very terribly on it, but because it's, it's a pretty fast game, or at least you know Rob uh, Rob Sabowski, uh, his his uh, game, he's he's got a set uh, at a pretty good uh, tilt, and uh, it's a fast game. But were you happy that that project finally finally came to light? Yeah, ultimately, I know there was some mixed feelings. Uh, I, I think part of it because um, Gene hadn't contacted um, too many people from the original design staff uh, uh, about it. I think Rob Morrison was had. I, th- I think he had mixed feelings about it. But um, I don't know. I I'm I'm glad that a few more people get to enjoy what we had done, and uh, and uh, I certainly hope that uh, perhaps. One of those units someday will find its way into the Pinball Hall of Fame, so even more people can go out and play on it at some point. Right. Huh. I mean, I'm I'm all for entertaining people, and I you know I don't want to keep these things bottled up. That's why I was really uh, disappointed when Incredible Technologies decided not to produce uh, you know manufacture the Orange County Choppers video pinball that Mark Ritchie had worked so hard on, and uh, we managed to get it completed. But again, there's another one. Um, uh, several people had spent several years working on that game, and then uh, only six units uh, went out to test. You know, they're sitting in the warehouse now. And what was the problem there that they didn't want to bring that to market? Um, cost. Uh, you know, Elaine looked at the cost to even manufacture a limited run and decided no, it was just too costly to do. It's like, oh, okay, gosh. I hope one of those will find its way to a museum someday also, but um, I don't know what Elaine's plans are. Now, how was it working for Python? How was it working with Python? Yeah. <clears throat> Let me do my favorite imitation. This was early in the uh, uh, Pinball Magic game. He comes by my office door, 
people who know Python know that he's a very animated person. He kind of flails his arms. He talks with his hands a lot. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a Transylvanian and uh, just very flamboyant. And, and his eyes get just very big, like horse's eyes, you know. And, and he's dancing outside of my office going, Jeff, you've got to vibrate the cabinet more. Like okay, I guess that means I got to stick more rumble and thunder into this game. <laughs> so, but it was just—I'll never forget him doing that. Um, he's an interesting character. I learned a few things from him. He's got his detractors out there. People love him or hate him. Uh, I have to love him because he was one of the people responsible for hiring me at Capcom. Uh, I believe uh, nobody's ever told me exactly who made the final decision, but uh, he, w- he was certainly in on the interviewing uh, process. And so, and and also he's introduced me to other game developers uh, even since Capcom. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit. But um, uh, you know, I d- whenever I've worked with him, I have to kind of pull the reins in and say, Python, now, here, sit down, you know, and tell me how you want this. You know, and, then, and then he's up and at him somewhere else. He's one of those types who's bouncing off five walls. And uh, it's hard to nail him down on stuff. But um, certainly has a lot of great ideas. What, what can I say? Python is Python. And, and a lot of guys have heard a lot of stories, and, and they're always fun to hear <laughs> about Python, <laughs> about his antics and, and misadventures and, and uh, whatnot. Uh, and I and I certainly wish him well up at Baytech, where uh, uh, he's been hiding out the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, I I don't know what all he's cranked out up there, um, but uh, and and also to his credit, one game that we worked on post Capcom called Wacky Ducks, little game, still selling. Um, I still makes the game, and they're still buying them. And every now and then, I see a little royalty check come in, and so. Um, uh, it's like wow, cool. So um, now, did you work on Python Zingy Bingy game at all? <laughs> you would have to ask about Zingy Bingy. <laughs> Had to ask. <laughs> I'm going to say publicly that Chris Graner came to me and very diplomatically said he did not want to work on that game. <laughs> so, being the only other sound designer at Capcom, I said, well, okay, I guess. Uh, uh, we never got to a point where there was any audio done on that on, on the prototype of that game. Hmm. So uh, uh, I was kind of relieved because I, I had misgivings about that project and, and the, the level of adult material, and I really felt that I had come to work uh, on games that were more family oriented, and, and I really I really like working on kids' projects. Um, kids are fun to uh, entertain and, and uh, easy to entertain, I guess, but uh, it's fun to do games that are oriented towards uh, kids. The thing I liked about our other Cap, uh, Capcom games is that it, it was, they were, yeah, we, we could stick in some adult stuff, you know, like in Big Bang Bar, but it was still family enough that, um, you know, when I watched some teens walk up to it and, and react to some of the characters, you know, and, and make sarcastic uh, comments back at the characters while they're playing, I was like, well, this is cool. I, I really like the interaction that's going on here. And I don't think we would have had that same kind of interaction with Zingy Bingy uh, had, had that gotten any further. Now, Python claims that that was more like a... Uh not so much an adult theme. He he called it more of a 
you know, male and female game, you know, kind of like something that would be good for you and your girlfriend to play. I mean, and and claims that it's not pornographic in any way, shape, or form. I mean, was that, like, just his perception? Are you saying that maybe that's not quite... (laughs) That that certainly surprises me. (laughs) But, you know, I, I can understand... I can kind of hear Python saying something like that and trying to be very diplomatic about it, but... Uh, many of us looked at that as being very adult. And that's how I'll describe it as uh, something that was very adult. Certainly would not have uh, uh, passed um, as as a, a general audience or, or family-oriented game. So if you were going to give it like a movie rating, it would it be like PG, PG-13 type thing? R or X. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, that would have been my that would have been my vote if I were on the uh, rating committee. R certainly. <laughs> so can you tell me any more about this? <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about Big Bang Bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you got this ball rolling. There's no net sense stopping it. <laughs> well, you know, if 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 have you ever talked to Foots? He's the one who was programming on that. He is the one who could tell you all about Zingy Bingy. <laughs> Because he he had it working in his office, uh, and could describe it much better than I could. I I kind of like came in and looked at it and like, okay, uh, I was still shoring up on. Uh, I think I was still working on uh, flipper football at the time, that was uh, coming around, and um, so I was kind of like, gosh, I I don't know where this is gonna go. <laughs> so, but you had none. You had done music for it, but no no uh, speech. There was there was no audio to, to the best of my knowledge. There was no audio done for that game in any way, shape, or form. Well, unless unless I've forgotten, may have given foot some some audio from some other game, and we just stuck it in as a placeholder. But I don't remember doing anything specifically for that game. Um, you know, from scratch. Right. right. So, uh, yeah. It, it, although. Had we uh, had the door stay stayed open at Capcom a little bit longer, maybe um, you know Python was really pushing it. But uh, I, I think you know Kingpin was uh, being worked on at the time. Uh, Flipper Football had just gotten gotten out the the door, and and you know they had traded places on the uh, order of manufacturing. Big Bang Bar was supposed to have gone out before Flipper Football. And uh, Python and, and others uh, managed to do their political muster and uh, get the order reversed, thinking that uh, they could sell more flipper footballs right away over in Europe. I think was the thinking behind that, but you know, don't quote me too much on that. <laughs> That's how I I recall, uh, and I was kind of removed from the you know political hierarchy. I, I'd close my door, and do my thing, and let the world walk past my office, um, kind of. But. Um, and uh, so Big Bang Bar never got produced because the doors closed. And of course, Kingpin—they uh, managed to get it finished before the uh, you know the final hammer fell. But uh, Mark Ritchie had asked me to, and I was already working on musical concepts for a gun game at the time, and asked me to do something a la Star Wars. And uh, so I kept working on that piece of music. I actually, finished a seven-minute piece of music, knowing that we were probably going to be history. And I was trying to get. The, you know whatever I could do done on the music, knowing that uh, his game 
probably would never get off the drawing board, which was uh, what ultimately happened. How did the the whole implosion of Capcom come about? There was a lot of writing on the wall. Uh, I remember in October of 96, they let the first wave of engineers go. I think there were 20 people they let go. And I remember Grace, uh, who I'd used the voice talent, was one of those let go, and there were some others. And, and it was a pretty sad day. And a real pall had come over the company, and I remember sending out an email company-wide saying, you know, you know we need to, like, pull together here, guys. And, and uh, although I, you know, I didn't know what was going on at the top. Um, Daryl Williams, who knew a little more of the inside stuff, stopped by my office one day and, and uh, said, well, yeah, Sujimoto, uh, when they, they first set this up, uh, they knew that um, they had to be prepared to go about $100 million in the red, possibly. And at that point, by October of '96, Daryl told me, they were already about $60 million in the red. So it's like, yikes. <laughs> so, um, uh, so in December of that year, when they pulled the plug on a lot of the rest of us, uh, um, you know, that was a very dark day. And um, and then there were a number of people who were there under contract who stayed through to the following March of, uh, of uh, 97. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a sad time. Do you think it would have survived if Big Bang Bar had trumped out Flipper Football? I don't really know for sure. I had heard from some people who felt that had we gotten Big Bang Bar out the door, it might have saved the company. But, you know, pinball was in such a downhill slide for everyone, uh, you know, Williams included at that point. Uh, and, you know, they were trying to save the day with the, the new 2000 series uh, shortly after that. Um and you know, ultimately, they they pulled out of it as well after they'd been doing it for so many years. Um, that I I don't think ultimately they they would have been able to save it. But I it would have been nice had they if they had gotten it out the door. Although, in looking back, I don't think it would have enjoyed the notoriety that it now has, the cult following. It's it's one of those weird things where uh, people want what they can't get. It's kind of like it's kind of like the the old girlfriend that you you wanted but you couldn't have, and so or uh, because there were only fourteen units uh, floating around there, um, it, it sort of developed this um, aura, I guess, and following. And uh, Gene finally managed to uh, um, you know satisfy the appetite of what one hundred eighty four, I think. What did you think of Kingpin? And it doesn't look like you worked on Kingpin, right? I didn't work. I helped Chris Granner on editing a little bit of the speech for that. He had pulled Steve Richdorf in uh, to do um, some speech. I forget what the character was even. Um, Steve and I to this day still uh, kid each other with the, the one of those lines. Yeah. <laughs> um, he had some other similar lines. He was, he was like a big fella in the game, and Steve is a big fella. Uh, those of who know him in real life, he's he's a truly big fella. But um, he played this uh, big character in Kingpin, and I edited his lines, and I think one other of uh, Chris's characters, and, and that's pretty much it. We were we were sticking in uh, text markers to run uh, lip sync on the dot matrix screen. It's something we actually developed on the Big Bang Bar game, and uh, where we um, we could actually fire off these text markers from within the audio file that would uh, we would have values attached to them that would handshake with the software uh, and then uh, 
it would tell the uh, dot matrix software which facial, you know, which mouth expression to run. Uh, and so it was a sort of lip sync of sorts, uh, which worked kind of well. It was kind of crude, but it was kind of fun to watch. And and, uh, um, and so I was helping Chris uh, do some of that work, which is very tedious work. But uh, um, that's the only credit that I could take on that game. Uh, it was, otherwise, it was Chris Graner all the way. What did you think of the game? I didn't get to play it. Hmm. They didn't have enough of it done at the time I was let go. To uh, it, it was still, you know, he had a Whitewood going and some other stuff. But uh, I was, I went over and played on it a few times. But I, I have, I really don't have much recollection of it. Um, so I, I really can't comment too much on that game. I know Mark was very sad when he had to sell his prototype, uh, and and I don't blame him. Uh, and, and I. I kind of hope that uh, Gene will finally get around to maybe reproducing that one as well. I'd like to. I'd like to see it again. Hmm. Now that there's sort of uh, a buzz about that game as well. Yeah, that one's going to be a bit more of a challenge because with the Big Bang Bar project, you know, like for instance, the board sets were of it. You know, Gene had Gene made 180 whatever of them because that's how many board sets he has. Well, now he doesn't have any board sets, so he's really starting at ground zero now. Well, and I understand he also really lost a lot of money on the production of Big Bang Bar. So, yeah. so uh, I don't know if his wife will let him make <laughs> make another game. But uh, you know, I don't. I, you know, I don't. I've only met Gene once, and so I I don't know what his capabilities are or what. But uh, the one time I did uh, see him down there uh, in Bloomington, uh, he was talking kind of like maybe he would, uh, you know, uh, do Kingpin at some point. So, yeah. Hopefully. Right, right. So now when you left Capcom, you you did uh, what, uh, Vacation, Vacation America, and then you got, and you also did the Orange County Chopper. Uh, well, that, that came a little later. I, I actually went to work for Anchor, or, well, <laughs> you know, Capcom wasn't Capcom when it started out. It started out as Romstar, then became GameStar, uh, which is when I came on board, and then, uh, uh, about the time they were releasing Pinball Magic is when uh, Capcom uh, absorbed our division under the main umbrella of you know the mothership, I guess, out there in Japan, and, and we took on the Capcom name. Same thing happened when I went to work for Anchor. It was a company formed by a game designer who wanted his own design team, uh, Randy Adams, who had developed uh, one of the early wheel games out in Las Vegas, and had made pretty good money on it, decided to uh, pull together a design team of ex-Williams people, you know, know, shades of Capcom, right? Uh, Ex-Williams people. Yeah. And so, again, I'm working with a bunch of people who'd come over from uh, games like Reel Em In uh, and some other uh, slot games from the Williams uh, side. And um, so uh, we, we started out as GameWorks, not to be confused with uh, Spielberg's game works, but um, Steven Spielberg came along, and uh, as Randy said, Spielberg's four attorneys to his one. <laughs> he ended up selling the name GameWorks to Spielberg, uh, so Spielberg could use it nationwide. But uh, and then we became ultimately we became Anchor Gaming Chicago. We were part of Anchor Games out of Las Vegas, which now has been absorbed by IGT, which is the 800-pound gorilla in the uh, uh, slot game world. Um, but uh, I chose not to relocate to Las Vegas. So, 
but I, I spent four years at Anchor and worked on 29 titles there. And uh, uh, we started out with electromechanical games. And those early games used that sound card that had one audio channel and one MIDI channel. And uh, arg. But yeah, you, yeah, you don't like that, right? It's it's a bit of a challenge. But um, when I um, Paul Heitch had done one of their early games for them and I listened to how he had uh, designed the music and stuff and I kind of followed suit on the first few games. So every place I've worked I've, you know, we just get the party rolling and then, the, you know, some kind of, something happens and the company decides oh, you know, gotta shut the doors. Damn. <laughs> now what about uh, the Vacation America which was a non kind of a non-commercial home pinball game? Now that came out of that came out of Churchill Cabinets or Chicago Gaming, which uh, was formed by, uh, uh, that's all part of the same building. That's <clears throat> Roger and Doug Duba. Roger Duba um, uh, used to build uh, the cabinets for uh, Williams and their pin games. And, and as far as I know, they're still doing the uh, pinball cabinets for Gary Stern. Right. And uh, uh, Roger is the... Uh, is the, the dad and, and he got Doug to come in uh, Doug's a, an accountant and uh, got Doug to come in and, and help him out and uh, Vacation America was like the first product I believe or one of the first products developed under the Chicago gaming name that um, they put together I forget who even designed it Kordak Kordak yeah yeah. I did meet Steve uh, once interesting gentleman uh, with a lot of history, I know. It was uh, supposed to be a quick and dirty little game. I shouldn't use the word dirty, sorry. You have to remember, I came in on the on the tail end of the heyday of pinball, so I didn't get to work alongside with a lot of the big names. Um, I just met Tom Capera for the first time. Uh, he had worked on uh, Cactus Canyon and uh, Corvette and, and something else. I just met him for the first time a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, and there's a lot of other names that guys have bandied about there that I wish I had an opportunity to have worked with. Uh, didn't, although I feel like I've worked for Williams because I've worked with enough ex-Williams people, but I've never set, in, set foot on their, their plant. Right. So uh, it's kind of kind of weird that way. Um, but anyway, Vacation America was uh, an economy game, you know, scaled down for size, scaled down for sounds and whatever. And... Uh, you know, they were still experimenting with what they were going to put under the hood and what they wanted in the game, and uh, I ended up producing more music than we could fit in the game. So uh, um, uh, it it was an interesting little project. Uh, I got one of the uh, kids from our neighborhood when we were living up in Lincoln Hills to do uh, one of the characters for me. She was uh, um, she had a she was very directable. And uh, I think I did uh, one of the characters in that game, and I think I got I think I got this kid's mom to do uh, the uh, the wife part in that game as well. Now, are those people like the kid in the neighborhood and the kid's mom? Are they actually paid to do this? Um, no, they. Well, I don't. I don't think we actually paid them on that one. They just they were just uh, happy to do it. Huh. It's sort of like uh, Larry King last night had uh, what's his name on the the guy who. Uh, um, host the Dirtiest Job in America program. And, oh, yeah, Mike Rowe. Yeah, and they were asking him about: Do they pay these people? You know, uh, you know. He said no. We, we go and we see these people doing their jobs, and we ask if they want to uh, tell their story to the world. And they and he said, more often than not, they're 
yeah. <laughs> I said, no, those people don't get paid. Probably should have paid them, but uh, you know they were just happy to do it, and uh, I would have paid them for subsequent work probably. But um, uh, it turns out the game didn't go very far anyway, right. and uh, I wasn't making much money on it. So uh, um, it was one of those things where we were we were hoping that the game would uh, start a new platform, and then we would see you know greater dollars further down the road. But uh, um, it's one of those projects where that doesn't seem to be happening. How'd you get to um, your current position? Incredible Technologies? Yeah. Well, there was the period off the end of Anchor when Anchor closed its doors in 2001. Uh, I went out, forced into working entirely on my own again for a while as a contractor, and uh, ended up scoring uh, a children's uh, video and, and uh, had hopes of uh, doing a lot more work in that area. But 2001 was such a, a dismal year uh, for um, the economy that company's uh, video animator that I was doing this work for, uh, Chris Olson, had his own company down in LaGrange. And uh, he had actually uh, come out of big ideas and had developed a lot of the Veggie Tales characters and had formed his own company. And I came in on the middle of a project where he was having had a, a major problem with a, a composer out of Nashville and uh, I got a call out of the blue like the week before uh, Anchor was closing down and asked me to come out and, and uh, interview with them finally. And and so on on the day we uh, got the announcement that Anchor was closing down, he, I had interviewed with them, uh, not knowing that we were going to be closed down, um, and decided that I would work for him. So I, I spent a lot of that spring doing a lot of work on, on his kids' video, which did get uh, produced. And he was hoping to do uh, yet another one in the series um, for uh, Word Entertainment. Um, they ultimately um, sort of cook in their books, I guess. And uh, so that project, uh, the thir- third video in their series, didn't happen. Uh, Chris was trying to get projects across the threshold at uh, a number of major places like Pixar and Disney and, and others and uh, got really close. But again, the, uh, the economy was such that many of those places were laying off people. And so um, we didn't get that pushed through, but I worked on a few projects for him. And then, uh, meanwhile, Python had, uh, going back to uh, Python Angelo, he had steered me on to some other game designers, and so I had uh, other uh, coin-up projects, redemption games, a couple of kitty rides, and, and uh, just a whole slew of little projects uh, that I was working on. Uh, was working on uh, several projects for Brian Hansen, who had uh, come out of Capcom, and uh, Brian and Python were working on some things together before they split up. And uh, they had also introduced me to uh, Mark Springer, who uh, is another ex-Williams person uh, who had designed several pin games there, has his own company. Um, actually, while I was still at Anchor, I uh, was working with Mark on a series of projects he had done for Disney Quest. And we did a, a series of games for Disney uh, and that was a lot of fun, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. He does very colorful uh, art, and and uh, I really enjoy the uh, uh, the toys and things that he sticks into his games. Huh. And he has a great sense of choreography, and so uh, um, and, and we still collaborate on some things. I ended up doing a lot of this and that for a couple of years, and still doing my voiceover work for radio and TV uh, um, commercials and, and whatnot. So I was doing a variety of things. 
Mark Ritchie kept telling me, stay in touch with me, stay in touch with me. And he was at uh, Incredible Technologies by that time. You know, he, he said, I'm working on something, but I can't tell you what it is. And then finally, in uh, we had just moved to uh, our new house in 2003. And Mark said, yeah, I think I finally got him convinced it's time to bring uh, a new sound designer in on this project. So I finally got to, uh, the, they, uh, Incredible Technologies had me do one project one piece of music for them as a contractor. Uh, I, I sort of wonder if it was kind of a test in a way. And I must have passed the test because I'm still employed there. And uh, it's been uh, four years now since I've been incredible technology. So I've had the opportunity to work on uh, um, Golden Tee Golf. Uh, I've done a little bit of work on Silver Strike Bowling. Uh, that was mostly Matt Kern's uh, work in that game. But uh, I did do a few pieces of music for that. And uh, but the 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 major project that I was brought on board there was for the Orange County Choppers video pinball. Now, whose idea was that? That was Mark Ritchie's. Although we didn't know when I first came on board, they were trying to pitch Harley Davidson. Hmm. And because Stern had already done a Harley Davidson pinball game, Harley didn't want to dilute their name by having yet another pinball esque project out there is kind of sort of how I heard it. So they uh, they turned us down, and I remember a bunch of us sitting in Mark's office, and we were tossing this group and that, you know, like the Martin Brothers out in out west and uh, West County Cho- uh, West Coast Choppers, and uh, but we felt that Orange County, because of the Discovery Channel show, they had the best name recognition. And so... Um, our company approached them and they agreed and we went up there and did one video shoot with them um, and that was a very surreal probably the most surreal birthday I've ever had <laughs> sitting on a video set in the shop at Orange County Choppers with Paul Sr. and Paul Jr. and I tell you Paul Sr. is a real trip Do those guys actually do any work on bikes anymore? <laughs> well I don't know about anymore I mean uh they certainly didn't do any work, actual work on their bikes that day, but we had them pretty busy that day. Plus, there was uh, another pair of photographers in taking pictures for uh, uh, toy, uh, you know, uh, merchandising stuff, which just really got Paul Senior all steamed about because uh, he's he's ADD and he switches channels a lot, and and he's you know he's he's just he's he's uh, he's a whole bag of whatever happening upstairs, <laughs> and so. Uh, it was a very surreal day. He steamed off of our set and was all we could do to get him back in later on that day. And Gosh, uh, Paul Jr. was... He's, he's very easy to work with and uh, took over a lot of the lines that we were going to have his dad do. And and uh, we got just enough of Paul Sr. later in the day to salvage the project. But uh, we, we, we were really wondering uh, whether we were going to have enough video to make it worth, uh, you know, completing the game so how does the video this is a video pinball how does the video incorporate it, it itself into the game well we had them in little clips they would come up on a little screen in the middle of the game every now and then with their their little one-liners and stuff mm-hmm. um, we had them doing a lot of help screen stuff you know um, describing how the player you know what you should be shooting for what you need to do in a particular mode um, Along with all the usual reactions to uh, good and bad shots and stuff like that. And was Vinny or Mikey in the in the thing too? 
Mikey was in it. Vinny was not, um, although Mikey did refer to Vinny in a couple of uh, cases. Um, but uh, it it was mainly to be just the the principal three. Um, Paul Sr., Jr., and Mikey. Now, was Mikey easy to work with? He was up to a point. Uh, Mark wanted to do a scene where he was going to have Mikey zap his dad. <laughs> and we're, and it would have been really funny. And uh, we got him all the way up to the point. We got him, got him dressed in the white lab coat. coat. We, um, Vinny even helped Mark finish welding a piece on this one box um, that we took out there, a big, big old switch box that we were going to have him hold that had a piece of cabling off the end. And Mikey was supposed to press this button, and then you know his dad was going to get zapped in this one mode. And then he he started reading through the script and kind of realizing what uh, what it was all about, and he didn't want to do it. I was like, what? Huh? <laughs> After all his dad has done to him, he didn't want to zap his dad. <laughs> oh gosh! And there was, uh, and then he also didn't want to be uh, portrayed as the one taking out the trash anymore. So he wouldn't do any of those lines. And we thought, okay, well, that's fine. But when we got to the part where we wanted to have him zap his dad, it's like, um, we got a few lines out of him. Well, that should really light things up. And, and there were a few other funny lines. And um, then he just kind of realized and said, no, I, I really can't do this. It's like, yeah. oh. So, the, so these guys were almost getting kind of prima donna status here. Oh, well, yeah, senior, certainly. Um yeah, watching him take after Mikey at one point, and you know they, they we see these two silhouettes just racing through the office doorway out there, and then this big metal door goes boom. You know, uh, you know, Mikey taunted his dad for something, like, and then uh, Paul Senior goes freaking retard. You know, and then, then they're running off, and boom! And it's like we're in the middle of taping Paul Junior, and everybody just you know we had to take a break in the taping for that one. It's just, it was just <laughs> typical of what you see on the TV show. So that so then that stuff on the TV show isn't so staged, then, is it? No, it is not. That is them. That is the real deal. <laughs> I'm I'm telling you, they are they are surreal <laughs> in their real lives. And it was my birthday, and it's like, gosh, I followed the company card that night as we went out drinking. It was the first time in years I'd done any drinking. It was well deserved. <laughs> So what you set up like a mini studio right there in their shop to do this? We uh well they they'd made room in the middle of the shop um and this was back in the old building over in Orange County they're uh, in Rock Tavern they're now in Montgomery. Um but uh they had a they moved a lot of their bicycles aside. I mean we got to see things like the the Liberty bike and the the jet bike and they had a bunch of the other bikes you've seen on Discovery Channel. We could not take any photos of those bikes because um, uh, photographic images uh, already belong to the Discovery Channel so we had to be careful of what we could videotape there was one gorgeous bike that was not used in the Discovery Channel uh, show that we could um, videotape them uh, you know with them and um, the the what was it, the Black Widow bike I think was in there as well and uh, oh these, these bikes are gorgeous God, you know. I, I thought they sold all that stuff. They were for clients. Some of, yeah, some of it was, but a lot of those, they had a lot of the bikes, so, they had some of the bikes there in the shop that I had seen on the TV show already. The jet bike was there and a few others. And, uh, and, uh, these, these were gorgeous bikes. You know, they, they, they're, it's like a pinball game. You know, you see it in pictures, it's one thing, and it's even more gorgeous when you see, you know, see it for real. Hmm. 
What can I say? Right. Nothing beats the real thing. Hmm. So you didn't have like little bicycles for like uh, these guys to ride around, like you know you're in the in the lame mode or something like that, and they're riding little miniature, you know, three wheel bikes. I'm doing any action? These are all uh, head and shoulder shots, pretty much. You know, where they, oh. we had them talking and, and doing one liners, and then we take a few things where Paul was sitting on one of the bikes but there was really no action involved in this there was plenty of other action going on with uh, animated video in the game uh, you know reaction of you know explosions and other things that would happen that you couldn't do on a real pinball game mm-hmm. um, you, you get certain shots and, and green sprinkly stuff would come out and, and I, I had a lot of fun sticking sound effects of that kind of stuff and, and certain lights would light up in a certain way and we we could you know fly bike parts in you know as you were in, in the build at the beginning of the game you're building a bike and and as you would hit certain shots uh, the bike part would fly up and fly and automatically be attached to the bike on a center pedestal and um, once you collected all the parts then you could uh, you could do other things or take that bike to uh, the show mode ultimately but um, so there's so many things we could do in animation and there just wasn't any room to do any more uh, animation with them except this little square that would pop up screen that would pop up in the, in the middle of the game and, and uh, would show their face and you know they would be talking and, and uh, you know, a little video clip hmm. but uh, we had planned to have a lot of them throughout the game again with little little help hints uh, you know off the help screen stuff and then uh, a lot of uh, reactions to shots or uh, you know player taunts and prompts and things like that. Huh, interesting. So of all the projects that you've worked on, which was the uh, you know the most fun and the most rewarding? Well, ultimately when I when I listen to my demos, the Orange County Choppers, I, I spent about a year on that project alone. Uh, I think uh, musically and sound effect wise uh, that was the most challenging. That was, uh, I think, probably game number 70 for me, if I've counted correctly, and I, I, you know, I'm starting to lose track of all the projects I've done on, uh, worked on in the last uh, 14 or so years. But uh, I would have to say that one. But Big Bang Bar certainly is right up there and very near and dear to my heart because uh, that was such a fun game at the time. And uh, just, you know, I got to do the spoofy, campy kinds of stuff and, and dig into this treasure trove of sound effects. And uh, now I have to I have to admit that a lot of the sound effects in Big Bang Bar started as off the shelf kind of stuff, but everything I put into a game has been manipulated and bent. And and actually, I kind of learned how to describe this after doing the Orange County Choppers game, after watching them build bikes on on the Discovery Channel show. Building sound effects is is a lot like building a custom bike. You may start with stock parts like stock fenders and, and other parts off the shelf, but uh, a single sound effect for the Orange County Choppers game, and I, and I, I know that I ruffled some feathers at IT because you know they're used to a golf game where you just got golf balls you know thumping on the play field and, and water sounds and, and balls falling in holes and little sound effects that are you know you just pull them off of the stock library and stick them in the game. It's, like, it's nothing big. The Orange County Choppers, I was really trying to be cinematic with a lot of thunder and and rumble and stuff and, and it takes a lot of layering and it's and so like building a chopper where you take this fender and you cut it 
and you weld something else to it and you grind it and you buff it and and uh maybe that something you welded isn't working so you got to cut it off and and weld something else to it and then you grind it and buff it some more and then you 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 detail it and, and you know you paint it and then detail it and then you know um do your final coat on the on the thing a lot of layers go into uh just that part that goes on the bike well the same thing with sound effects i i may pull two or three effects out of a sound library. I may take a, uh, a an explosion from someplace and, and a little bit of uh, jet flyby noise from somewhere else and, and add in a little bit of uh, avalanche uh, rumble or something for low frequency and, and throw a dash of maybe a big door, you know, metal door slamming somewhere and mix those things together and, and uh, run them through you know, or process the parts separately, then mix them together together uh, into some big blasty uh, rumbly uh, thing and, and then run it through a, you know, a compressor or, or, or a multi-band processor first then the compressor <laughs> you know remember everything as loud as possible that's my right. mantra in a, right. in a game like the Orange County game and so uh, there's a lot of stages to that and it may take a full day to produce a single sound effect sometimes uh, you know the big the bigger sound effects, small sound effects. Yeah, I can probably do a bunch of those uh, in a whack, and, and and certainly on on some kids' games, I have to do a bundle of sound effects in a day. But um, I would say the Orange County Choppers game is probably going to, to date, has been the biggest project and the most challenging, and probably the most rewarding game, uh, other than the fact that it never got manufactured. And and will it ever get manufactured? Uh, if everyone would call in and write to Elaine and, and tell her, you know, please make this game. <laughs> but I, they couldn't do it now because the license has run out. Oh. Uh, so much would have to be changed. It would have to be the theme would have to be changed. Hmm. Well, cool. I really do appreciate the time, and you, you know, I know this was you know a lot of a lot of time for you. It's been a pleasure, and and you know, I better dig out the old files here. It'll help kind of refresh my memory on some things, and, and uh, start looking at some of these lines in the speech. And it's like, gosh. We really did some fun stuff. <laughs> well, Clay, it's been a pleasure. Glad I finally was able to uh, get off the dime here and give you a call. Thank okay. you again. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I'd really like to thank Jeff Powell for joining us tonight on TopCast. Really do appreciate his time and glad he came on the show to talk to us about his experiences at Capcom uh, as a sound engineer. And I hope you all will come back again and listen to us again on TopCast. Views and attitudes expressed on TopCast belong solely to the appearing guest and may differ significantly from the views and attitudes of the TopCast production staff. An appearance on TopCast does not imply endorsement by TopCast staff.